Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, I interview Limud Seattle 2019 presenter Rochelle Wynn. Rochelle talks about writing an ethical will, a letter to your children and grandchildren passing on a legacy of the values you hold dear. To illustrate, she reads a little of her own. So I ask you, friends and family, are you fluent in kindness? Do you do acts of loving kindness, imelut hasadim, on a daily basis? So now, instead of mourning, instead of being sad, go and do. I wanted to ask you about your Jewish experience and how death has been framed within the Judaism that you've encountered. I grew up in a household that was more on the Orthodox side than the conservative side. My mother was very picky when it came to a certain ceremonial events. Like she always, always lit Hanukkah candles and Shabbos candles exactly on time. And Havdalah was always exactly on time. And there was a lot of frustration dealing with that. So that in my life now, it's when everybody's ready, that's when, that's when we, and everybody's happy and together, that's when we do it. I went to a community Hebrew school with an absolutely marvelous teacher, Jack Pecker, who framed my life all the way through. Uh, he had daughters, and to him, girls were just as equal as boys, if not more equal. And to this day, there's a group of us that meet at his grave about once every year, every other year, and study together. Uh, the same group of us stu studied together from the time I was five until I finished high school. After high school, I spent two years at Stearns College, which is the women's branch of Yeshiva University. I left there and finished up at the University of Massachusetts, where I got married and changed my major from a genetic engineer for foods to an education degree so that I could have children and have the summer, and I taught for 40 years. Besides teaching in the secular world, I ran a after-school Hebrew school for many years, which was a joint venture between a conservative synagogue and an Orthodox synagogue, and a Sunday school for the whole 40 years. So within that Jewish experience that you had, what were the messages that you received about death or about how Jewish people approach death, view death, talk about death? I didn't. I didn't receive anything because my mother always said, I'm not going to that funeral because I couldn't go to my mother's funeral because I, Shelley, was a baby, and she's not going to any other funerals and neither is anybody else. Even though I had people in my life who died, like I had a brother-in-law who died at 14 of leukemia, it was just not spoken about at all. I did go to his funeral. He was my brother-in-law. Even as an adult, when someone died, she was very picky about the fact that in order to sit Shiva, she had to go right home. So very often, I would meet her in New York, go to the funeral, 
pick, take her back to the airplane so she could go back to Florida. So it was not it was not the experience I would want my children or my grandchildren to have. But as you left the house and you went to Stern College and met this teacher in Hebrew school, were there other ways of talking about death or approaching it that may have led to your interest in the ethical will? I was well in my 30s when the rabbi of my congregation was Rabbi Jack Reamer, who was interested in ethical wills and wrote a, wrote a book about ethical wills that I became really, really interested in that whole aspect and the whole aspect of what the Hever Kedusha does, the whole process of, the, of Jewish death. And I'm always glad that I got into that because, well, 11 years ago now, I lost a granddaughter and I was involved in her illness from the the time that she was diagnosed to the three years and spent the last week in hospice with her 24 hours a day. So I became real real involved with that whole death process in a much more positive way than I would have ever thought that it would have, could ever happen. So could you tell me more about that class that you attended where you found out about ethical wills and the Chavra Kedisha? What was that like? Well, it wasn't a class. <laughs> it was kind of a whole—he wrote the book. I read the book. I asked him—I mean, he was available to me. I asked him lots of—he still is. I asked him lots of questions about it. I put together a workshop because I realized how important it was for people to know they have more to leave to their children than their silverware and their money. And so I've done this workshop for sisterhoods. I've done a a workshop on ethical wills a number of times. And I'm working on a pamphlet to teach children more about death. And when I came to Beth Shalom here in Seattle, they did not have a book specific to their congregation. So with a group of other other interested people and Rabbi Borden, we put together a book so that now if you have a loss in the congregation, and it's very interesting in Seattle because many, many, many of the people don't have family. So this is how you do it. This is the traditional way of doing it, and there were some non-traditional things put in. And so is that booklet, I'm a little confused, is it about talking to children about death, or is it about the Jewish rituals surrounding no, death? it's two different booklets. Okay, One it. is about, the one that's, pub- that's published and available at Beth Shalom is about the ritual in specifically Seattle, dealing with the Beth Shalom Cemetery, dealing with the people that you would contact, dealing with how to arrange Shloshim, what you can expect and help you can expect during uh, Shiva. The other booklet is still in process on how to talk to children. I'm practicing on my great-granddaughter. So let's go back to ethical wills. Can you tell me what is an ethical will? An ethical will, and you can call it a love letter to your family. It's a document. You can read it at different times. In my head, I wanted to read it as a eulogy instead of a eulogy because I had a bad experience with a rent-a-rabbi eulogy at the death of my grandfather where the family finally said to the rabbi, thank you very much, we'll take over from here. Since I know that I'm going to be moving around probably in the next few years and not sure where I'm going to ever end up dying, 
I thought it would serve as a instead of a eulogy. But in the meantime, you can follow the example, and I think one of the best examples that was written was written by uh, President Obama, who wrote a love letter to his children, which is basically an ethical will. So what you want to explain in these letters is not what to do with your money. That's the easy part. But what values do you want to live by? What institutions reflect your values that you want them to support? How they should treat their children, how they should treat their neighbor's children. Those words that make the world a friendlier, nicer place. So even though it's called a will, since it's about these ideas that you want to pass along, I was wondering, does anyone share this document before they die? Oh, lots of people. Some people write a new document every year and give it to their children as a birthday letter. Mm. So they, those people call it the birthday letter. <laughs> I'd call it an ethical will because that's why Rabbi Bremer called it, and I just kept the terminology. So in your session outline that you gave me, you talked about how this is a historical process, and there are actually a few examples from the Torah. Can you tell us about those? The most obvious example from the Torah is when Jacob died, he individually gave a, a sort of blessing to each one of his children individually. So that's one way you can go about doing an ethical will. My very first ethical will that I wrote, I wrote it to my children. I had three children. I could do that. As time went on, I ended up with eight grandchildren. Well, that made it a little bit harder to have eight grandchildren and three children. It would go on and on forever. And now I have three and a half great-grandchildren. That's why my latest one it deals with a general idea rather than individual sayings. So I was wondering, um, in your session outline, you actually suggested a list of bits of wisdom that people could include. There were 37 points on that list, things that you suggested people might look over, and if it reverberated with them, if it appealed to them, they could put it in their letter. I was wondering if you could pull out just a few of those points and say what a person might want to convey the list was compiled from a number of sources. Pirkei Avot, Saying of the Fathers, was one part of the list. Some of the sources were non-Jewish sources. A psychology book was another part of the list. So the list was compiled from all kinds of sources, and it dealt with such things as, what would you like your children to do in their spare time, besides earning a living, what should they do for the betterment of the world? And most of them had that kind of aura about it. I gave out a list. Then I said, and now that you've looked through the list, pick out seven. And then from the seven, narrow it down to three or four or one even. The latest version of my ethical will only deals with kindness because I feel that that covers a whole, a whole lot of things. But there were other little sp very specific things about what do you want to tell your grandchildren about me? You know, what do you want to do with your family history? How are you going to handle the fact that Uncle So-and-so committed suicide? Mm. I tried to hit some of the troublesome things as well. And if I redid the list, I would have to end up put putting in something about the opium crisis. Many, many members of our families are struggling with that issue at the present time. So it seems from this that 
And you said earlier that you've actually rewritten your ethical will many, many times. Yes. Now, do you do that? Uh, this is my fifth my fifth edition. <laughs> fifth iteration. Do you actually keep the past ones in a file so people I'm can see? I'm not a good keeper. Okay. Before the internet, I didn't keep anything. <laughs> now, of course, the computer just keeps it. Right. And if I can find it, if I can find it, it's good. If, it, if I can't find it, oh well. So what has prompted you to write each new iteration? Is it on a schedule? Is it when you feel passionate about something? It's basically on a schedule. Every time somebody new is, becomes a member of the family, either by marriage or by birth, you know, as the family grows, it, well, we ought to write this again. <laughs> right. And every time I give a workshop, I kind of look at it and say, mm, maybe I ought to write it again. So you mentioned how you've actually taught a whole lot of workshops. <clears throat> I've taught some workshops. A some whole workshops. lot is not right. <laughs> okay, so you've spoken about how you've taught some workshops at various different venues. I was wondering, why did you choose to teach it at Seattle Limud? Well, I mean, Limud is just an intricate part of me. I was here at the the first nibblings, it's my signature that's on our nonprofit applications. And the first year that Limud was here, I had too many administrative things, which I hate doing, to do. <laughs> and this time I could teach. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a run. I was wondering if you would be interested in reading maybe a paragraph of your ethical will. I'm going to read a paragraph that is very simplistic. Way back when, in 1986, Robert Fulcom wrote a poem book called All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I agreed with him then, and I wondered briefly if I was teaching at the wrong end of the educational system. I taught high school. When Miriam was little, Miriam is my great-granddaughter, his ideas were reinforced with a book called Baby Be Kind by Jane Cowan Fletcher, who wrote as follows. When someone falls down, help them up. Sheer warmth when it's cold, sheer cold when it's hot. Sheer cookies or crackers or whatever you've got. Take turns on the swing, take turns on the slide. When someone is tired, give her a ride. Never let your anger go too far. Hold tight to the hand that's holding you. Give a great big hug and you get one too. Friends and family, this is what I wish for you. Now, I know some of you are shrugging your shoulders and grinning inside that my philosophy of life is predicated on an infant's text. So indulge me, and let's see what the adult world has to say about kindness. And after that, I go into Jewish texts, the Pirkei Avot. I go into literary texts from James Joyce. I go into political texts and so on. And then I end up offering the priestly blessing with, so I ask you, friends and family, are you fluent in kindness? Do you do acts of loving kindness, tasadim, on a daily basis? So now, instead of mourning, instead of being sad, go and do. Feed the poor, support your congregation, take care of the environment, maintain shalom bayat, a peaceful home, teach your children, work for peace, and you make your own list. Just do. And don't forget to be kind to yourself. Stay healthy, laugh often, and remember to hug and receive hugs. This is my spirit, my soul, and we will rest happily. Lastly, I offer you the traditional priestly blessing. Wonderful. 
That's really powerful. And my question to you is, I feel like sometimes the most important things are the things that we hear over and over again, and in a way are the simplest things. And when you think about your descendants receiving your ethical will, what is it about it being in your voice, it being from you, that makes it more powerful? Oh, that's a horrible dream I keep having. I know that it's possible for me to make a holographic presentation of this, and I have thought about how that would seem to the family if there I was standing saying these things. I just can't put my arms around it yet. So that might be the sci-fi version. The futuristic ethical will will be the hologram of the person saying those things. That's right. But in terms of it affecting your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren, they'll be reading it as a letter. And what about it coming from you will will have that effect on them, do you think? I think that it will emphasize and reinforce the things that they've, they're already doing. I mean, I have children who are EMTs. I have children who are volunteer fire department. So they're already d- beginning to do th- those things. And, you know, they grew up in a house where before you light candles, there's always the tzedakah box. And then there's the whole ritual of, okay, the tzedakah box is full. What are we going to do with the tzedakah box? Who's it going to go to? So, you know, those ideas are already been inculcated, and they go to other organizations that continually inculcate those ideas. So what I'm hearing is, ideally, the ethical will will not come as a surprise to anyone. It's kind of a culmination of what you show to your children and grandchildren through your actions. If not always my actions, at least my words. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So I've been actually talking to people about this interview um, for the past week, and a lot of people have never heard of an ethical will. And I think that's common, that this is not a widely known about or widely embraced practice anymore. Why do you think that is? If we want to view it in the Jewish world, a lot of those kinds of practices have kind of fallen by the wayside, along with ethical wills. Oh, I'm at loss for the word. It used to be a practice that when a baby was born, the grandmother or somebody in the family embroidered a piece of cloth with the family history on it that was folded up and kept in the synagogue. And it's because of those, it's because of those that we had some of the names of people who we lost in the Holocaust, because we had, and some of the families. Wow. So a lot of those have just fallen by the wayside as our civilization becomes so busy with going to work, doing the dishes, cooking meals, taking the kids to school. All kinds of things became busy, and those things kind of fell by the way. So I think once people hear about the practice of um, writing an ethical will, I think it would be very appealing to people to be able to express what they believe in most, what they're passionate about, to their children and grandchildren. But I imagine there might be a few stumbling blocks. I imagine there are going to be a lot of stumbling blocks. What have you heard when you talk to people? Well, the first group I ever did this with, the ethical will workshop with, 
in Seattle was with a group from Beth Shalom called the Empty Nesters. And they're all older people. Some of them are older than I am. It was very well received. People have worked on it. People have talked about them with me. People have shown me what they've written. People have, one woman told me she tore up 15 copies and she's on her 16th one. It's hard. I'm old enough to have gone through life with a wonderful secretary. And one day I walked in and she was crying. And I said, Dolores, what's the matter? She said, I'm just typing your ethical will. And the tears were just rolling down her face. So, One of the stumbling blocks I could foresee, especially when I consider doing it myself, is that I'm often so critical of my own writing that it stops me from writing. Or I don't know how to start or I don't know how to get into the writing process. Do you have a recommendation? That's what that list is for. I have another list of starters. You know, Dear Family is an easy starter. Hi, Everybody is a very casual starter. The starter that I heard way back when from my girlfriend's grandfather was, you're all gathered here to mourn for me. I don't want you to do that. So there are all kinds of ways. And as far as writing is concerned, I spent a lot of my life teaching kids in high school and junior college how to write. You know what? If it's from the heart, it's fine. It doesn't matter if you use hackneyed words. It doesn't matter if your punctuation isn't perfect. It doesn't matter if one word could be better than another. The thing is you're writing it from your heart, and that's all that really matters. Another stumbling block that I imagined is people often have fears of how others will receive them, how others will judge them. And I could imagine someone having those fears and letting those fears get in the way, say, will my children listen to what I say? Maybe they don't care. Am I imposing my own beliefs on them? You know, those kinds of things. Have you heard that? In your sure, my kids tell me that all the time. How can you tell us that? How can you impose that on us? You know, we have our own ideas. Well, that's fine. You have your own ideas. Let's develop your ideas, and let's mesh the two ideas together. But, you know, if you're using it as an ethical will for when you're dead, what do you care what people are going to say about you? <laughs> Very true. <laughs> if you're using it as a birthday letter or an anniversary letter, then that gets a little more complicated. You need to be a little more careful with your word choice. You need to be more careful to be sure that you have more praise than criticism. You need to be sure you're not stepping on anybody's toes. And once again, I think if people want to read a really good example, uh, President Obama's letter to his daughters were very well done. One thing I was curious about while reading the outline of your session was you said that you had a list of things that you can leave to your children in the ethical will, and the first six or so were very expected. But then you said recipes, family photos, and items of clothing. So how do you foresee those things being part of the ethical will? Addendums. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because there are things that are in your family, and by and large— really large. I am not a very emotional person. I have trouble seeing things as transmitters of ideas. Now, recipes, maybe. 
It, it, but that's just to carry on a family tradition. You know, my mother's matzo balls tasted like this. Her mother's matzo balls tasted differently. So your family tradition is that matzo balls. Our dessert of non-dessert, because the afikoman is a dessert, at the Seder is always, now, is always a jelly roll, raspberry, because my granddaughter who passed away, that was her favorite. So mm-hmm. you're, you're doing things in memory of as well. A kiddush cup that has been in the family for five generations brings all those memories of family and the people alive. Clothing was brought to my attention recently. One of my granddaughters who called me and said, I found this wedding dress wrapped up in this plastic bag in the linen closet. Whose is it? And I said, oh, that must, that's my mother's wedding dress. She said, well, your mother was married in 1939. I said, yeah. She said, well, why is it all just bunched up? I said, I took it from her house to my house, and that's the way it was, and I've never given it much thought. Well, this granddaughter, who's into clothes big, was just appalled, and she had it She had it reworked. It's a size two. Nobody in my family wears a size two. And she has it framed. The whole idea of clothing being important just kind of came into my mind because I would always think about a talus. One talus is used for uh, burial, but many men had many different talisim. So, you know, that was always passed down to the next bar mitzvah boy or was used as a chuppah for a wedding so that you had those articles that became memories and the memories hopefully are attached to deeds of gemilut chasadim. Have you talked to your children or other grandchildren yes. about it? Yes. Well, they know I'm interested. They've seen the book. They might not have read this one that I read with you, but they've read other ones. Yeah. They know where it is with my important papers. Uh, they know the story of my grandfather's funeral where we asked the rabbi to go away. My grandfather died very shortly after his youngest child died. And the rabbi said something about, only the good lived long lives. And the family just had it. <laughs> it's a good motivation to get things in line <laughs> before you go. Absolutely. Well, that's a whole other thing that I think people ought to get things in line, that not only an ethical will, but also a real will and their power of attorney and what they want done with their stuff and have their funeral arrangements paid for, or at least leave some money to have it paid for. Now, I'm not going to go so far as one friend of mine who had all the paper goods and plastic goods put away in a box in her basement for the shiva after she dies. That's a little much. (laughs) So earlier you talked about how one of your models is the love letter that Obama wrote to his daughters. And I saw that you called it a love letter in your session as well. Could you expand on that concept? Well, if you go to look up ethical wills on non-Jewish sites, that's what they usually call them is a love letter. Huh. And I like the idea. I like the idea that I have this granddaughter who's going to be bat mitzvah, and I am in the process of writing one for her. I think it's a good way to gradually add the idea of commitment to making the world better to a child all the way along the way. 
I really like that idea of calling it a love letter because when you hear that phrase normally, you would think a way that one person tries to court the other. But I think it's very important to know that love takes many forms. But you are courting. You're mm. courting this child, this other person to be in your camp when it comes to this value. So that's how you see it, to convey your values in a way to keep them kind, to keep them generous. And to know that they can't just take, that they have to give. It seems to me that there are generations that I've lived through where the making of money, the self-indulgence has become much more apparent and bragged about than rather the things that they do to make the world a better place. For a matter of fact, sometimes those are even hidden. And if you say to somebody, you know, what are you doing to make the world a better place? And even if they're doing things, they don't put it in that parameter. Does coaching t-ball count as making the world a better place? Well, I mean, come on, you've got seven little kids or eight little kids you're making an impression on. Of course that counts. So what I'm hearing from you is that we live in human society, and in human society, culture can change sometimes, where sometimes being a person who values good deeds and taking care of others is esteemed, and others when it's not. And the practice of writing your ethical will is a way of you trying to push the needle a little bit. Absolutely. And Shabbos table is a nice place to push it because if a stranger comes to Shabbos table and it's always, well, what do you do? Let me tell you, we had a guest recently who looked at me and said, I do work for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Mm. And I said, well, what kind of work do you do? And he, didn't, he worked for Amazon. I mean, he made his living working for Amazon, but he saw his work for the world as being part of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. That's the kind of thing I would like to do. Why do you have to identify what you are by the way you earn your living? Well, thank you so much for coming to talk with me. You're more than welcome. It's been my honor. And the holy mood thing has been my honor. My dream come true for Seattle. The Seattle Limoodcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Libicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Rochelle Wynn.